All right, our psalm this morning deals with our problems in the evening, specifically our problem of falling asleep because of the stress that is in our life. The study of sleep is a major component of our world, and it's a real problem for many of us. So, if you find yourself during this sermon drifting off to sleep, if you can give Jesus credit for your sleep, then you are free to sleep the entire time. Only on this Sunday, it is allowed and it's appropriate, and it might be the correct application to the sermon. Maybe not exactly, but there is a component of that. But here's a question for us. What is the connection between the joy that we have in Christ and our sleep? That's the issue before us this morning. We're going to see God's blessing of rest as a result of his sovereign love for us. Keep your Bibles open to Psalm 4 as we'll be going through this verse by verse. We are continuing in our summer series of uh, the Psalms and seeking out God's gift of joy given to us through this ancient songbook, that gift of joy that comes only from the Lord. It's that state of being inside of both our heart and inside of our mind that is supernatural happiness, that is perpetual happiness regardless of the circumstances which surround us. Last week, we saw from Psalm 30 that joy comes in the morning. Uh, Today, we see the Lord provides joy throughout the entire day, including in the evening as we attempt to fall asleep. So in Psalm 4, we will see that because of God's grace in our lives, we actually can sleep with ease even when the world is crazy around us. Okay. Let me make a few observations here about Psalm 4 before we get into the actual content. First, this is a psalm of David. We know that. He was the king of Israel. These words were penned when he was in some type of significant stress. Let me say that again. Significant stress. Could have been when King Saul pursued him and wanted to take his life. Could have been when his own son Absalom pursued him and wanted to seek his life. Regardless, it was a threat. It was real, it was serious, and he had an inner struggle to enjoy the Lord's favor. As mentioned, this psalm does end with God granting the gift of sleep. As I studied a bit this week, Americans, of course, are notorious for all kind of sleep issues. I don't know if you will sleep better tonight as a result of this sermon. I hope you will, but I hope you'll see this. God cares about every single part of our lives including our physical bodies, including our ability to rest. I hope you know that the entire goal of our salvation is rest. He wants us to have it. It is his gift to us. There's a lot going on here in this passage that represents our ability to fall asleep. The last observation And this really is the heart of the psalm. So before you actually fall asleep, pay attention to this. The particular problem taking place in David's life and expressed in the psalm is the reality that there were false accusations made against him. People were lying to him. People were lying about him. That is, there was someone or a group of people who were slandering David who were saying things about him that simply were not true. And we don't know exactly what those accusations were, but they certainly could have been attacks against his character, 
Attacks against his position as the king. Attacks against his popularity, against his decisions, against his family. All type of things are possible. It's not mentioned. But the stress in his life was not just a random anxiety. It was the fact that someone was slandering him. The psalm points us to how to deal with this reality when you are being accused by someone falsely. So before we get into the content, let me ask you this question. Are you a victim of slanderous attacks? Are there people within your circles who, for whatever reason, despise you, are envious of you, who speak against you, who lie about you? Now, before you dismiss the question, some of you actually live in a scenario quite like this. With the pain and conflict that comes from family or coworkers or even sometimes people at church, you really can relate to David, that they are lies being told about you. But you know, also in my experience, my own walk with the Lord and in pastoral ministry, one of the greatest dangers, one of the greatest threats, one of the loudest voices against ourself is often ourself. And the fallenness of the world and the horror of sin done against us throughout our lives We can easily hate ourselves and we can easily struggle to believe what is true, what the Lord says about us. It's possible you are your own worst enemy, that you have a hard time believing what is good about you in the gospel. But for every one of us this morning, every single one of us who desires to follow Jesus, who desires to live by faith in him, you do have an enemy who hates you. The devil and his evil forces desire nothing greater than to rob you of the joy that is yours in Christ. He really does despise you, and he will consistently attempt to falsely accuse you, resulting in our joy being removed. So understand, we all need to hear this message. We all need to see these tools that David offers. We all need to see what David did in the midst of these lies against him and appropriate them for ourselves. The psalm breaks down nicely into three simple sections, and I want us to see this as we answer this question. How do we experience joy when we face false accusations against us? How do we experience Christ's joy? All right, three points here. From verse 1, notice the foundation of our joy. Secondly, verses 2 through 5, notice the pathway of joy And then lastly, verses 6 through 8, notice the result of joy. All right, verse 1, notice the foundation of joy is found in a very, very confident prayer. All right, here's the scene. David is dealing with these lies from an enemy. We don't know what they are. And just as we can all relate, those words hurt him. The words from someone else which are not true but are given to us, they sting. And they sting badly. And more than just that, his mind is now racing as he ponders how mad he is at the person who is mad at him. He's anxious, he's frustrated, he's probably a bit irrational, he's hot in the moment. If cars had been invented in David's day, he would have driving rage and speeding and cursing and all that. David's bothered, he's mad, he's troubled. Why? All because of what other people are saying about him, which he knows in his heart, are not true. Can you relate? Maybe just a little? 
I suspect we all can a bit. But what does David do immediately when his blood is boiling? It's so simple that we cannot ignore it. Before David does anything, before he defends himself, before he responds, before he reacts, before anything else, his first action is to simply do this. He prays. That's what verse 1 is. This is what he said. Answer me when I call to you, O God, of my righteousness. I know this seems so basic, but we really do need to ask this question. Do we pray before we complain? Do we pray before we respond? The foundation of our joy begins here. It begins with us calling out to God. Very honestly, very sincerely. But look back at verse 1 and notice a few details here. This is not a simple common prayer. It's both very personal and it's theologically rich. David's confidence in this moment of distress has a foundation. When he calls to God, he recognized, quote, that God is his righteousness. His hope that God would listen to his prayer was based on his faith in the character and the nature of who God is. He knew that God would always be faithful to his promises and that David had a promise from God covenantally that God would always be with him. Thus, he had every reason to ask God for help based upon the nature of God. I was thinking about this, this picture and what David had in mind and its store here. It reminded me of all of our baptisms. I love the picture here when someone is baptized, either when an infant comes forward with his or her parents or an older person who professes faith. Here's what happens. Water is sprinkled, representing the blood of Jesus Christ and his righteousness that covers us. The Trinitarian language is used. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In that moment, a spiritual seal is placed upon the person being baptized for all of eternity. A hope in the faith of God that God would someday be righteous to this person throughout their lives. But think about it. It is God who is doing the declaring. It is God who is speaking. It is God's work. It's because of what he has done. He is the one who can make us clean. Do you see why David was so confident at this moment when he prayed? He was confident because God was his righteousness. Because in Christ, we now too can be confident because he is our righteousness. You see this morning, when we pray, we pray as God's chosen family members. Now there's another component of this prayer in the second half of verse 1 that I think is just as foundational. Not only is our righteousness found in him, but notice the past tense component of the prayer. David declares to God and to his own heart that God had been faithful to him in the past when he had faced previous times of distress, when he had battled other forms of pressure. What had God done? God had been faithful to him all along. God had delivered him then, and now he is saying, I can trust God in the future because of what God has done in the past. If you have your Bibles open, Turn over to the right just a bit to Psalm 37. And here also David mentions in a time of distress how he thinks about the Lord in the context of all of his life. 
I love this. Look at Psalm 37, verse 23 through 26. And notice this past and present nature of trusting the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 23 says, The steps of man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Now notice verse 25. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. What is David saying here? When I was young, the Lord was faithful. Now I'm old, the Lord is faithful. What has been the one consistent theme in my life? God has been faithful to me. So church, here's the question. If God was faithful to you yesterday, do you have any reason to believe he will not be faithful to you tomorrow? And of course, the answer to that is, yes, God will be faithful. But I think that's kind of part of the problem. It's easy for us to logically declare in our minds that God will not abandon us and we can trust him. We can all intellectually agree that that is true. But painful words from other people against us are so powerful. David needed more than just that. See, his words were logical, yes, but these false accusations from family, from friends, from people we know are so hurtful, David does not end the psalm at verse 1. You see, we just can't make this anxiety go away. We need to do something as well. So yes, David begins this fight for joy with prayer, open, honest, sincere, devotional, theologically rich prayer. But it's his foundational starting point. But now notice in verses 2 through 5, as he prays, David is also led to action. We've seen the foundation. Now notice these past steps, if you will, from verses 2 through 5. I want to mention three things here that David did that I think we also can do in our own fight for joy. Uh, Each of these begin with the letter C. They are compare, control, and choose. Compare, control, and choose. And in order to deal with the false accusations and the stress that comes with it, we need these. All right, first, notice David compares the voice of his enemy to what the Lord says about him. Verses 2 through 3, David either asks his enemies this question or in his heart he just simply asks to the Lord. He simply compares their voice to the voice of his king. He says this, How long are you going to say these things about me which are not true? How long are you going to attack me? How long are you going to ridicule me? Because you can spout these lies all you want, but understand this, the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. That is, if you want to slander, if you want to ridicule, if you want to reject, if you want to lie, you go right ahead. But guess what? As you do all of that about me, the Lord actually hears me when I call. You see, what he's done is he pits the two voices against each other. The voice of the world, which is not true, 
compared to the voice of the Lord, which is true. And when he pits the two against each other, he realizes in his heart, this is not a fair fight. What the Lord says is true is so much more powerful than what the world says is true. All right, I know this is not basketball season, but I thought of this as kind of a hypothetical illustration. So go with me. Something always happens, I feel like, when I watch basketball games at Rupp Arena. It's been fun to watch over the years. At least historically, it's been fun to watch. There's a strange phenomena that always seems to occur. Just imagine a visiting team coming into play UK and Rupp Arena. Pretend it's Auburn, somebody like that. In the first half inside of Rupp Arena, inevitably, the visiting team always seems to shoot unbelievably well. I don't know why that is. They just always seem to be hot when they're playing. And if you pay attention to that, you get lost into what always is going to happen. It's annoying. It's like a little pest. They can take an early lead and everyone gets nervous and starts complaining about the officiating, complaining that Cal has lost it, something like that. In reality, it's just Auburn. But here's what takes place typically in the game. As the game goes on, the arena gets louder. The cats start to play well with a little more confidence. The annoyance is replaced by the truth. Usually about midway through the second half, the opponent no longer can shoot like they did at the beginning. And the cats tend to roll. But here's the deal. If you focus on the annoyance, you will go crazy. You'll be nervous, you'll be upset, and you will not be able to enjoy. If you focus on the truth of what inevitably will happen, then you can live with confidence. Now, hear this. Whatever is in your lie, or whatever lies in your head this morning, I want you to compare that lie to these words. For you, Christian, therefore, there is now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. There's none. Pit the two against each other. Friend, your God is your Father and He delights in you. I know the hurt that you have received from others is real, but you, when you compare that voice to the voice of your Lord, you will see the two are not close. Listen to the voice of truth. Your Father loves you. Secondly, We've seen that David compared. Now notice he also, in verse 4, controlled. Who did he control? He controlled himself. I can't think of a better way of saying this, but there was a sense of control at this moment. Remember, David's mad. He's hot. Others were lying about him. He knew in his heart it was ridiculous. And yet, he said, do not sin in his anger. We are not to fall into the trap of others in the world against us. We don't sin even when we are mad. I found this kind of humorous this week in my study. Uh, in the ESV study Bible, the note on verse 4 uh, was kind of funny. It said this, If you feel angry at those who slander you, which you very well may do, quote, do not seek revenge. When I read that, I thought, which you really may well do. Oh, I think you probably will if someone is lying and sinning against you. 
But notice what maturity in the Lord looks like in response to slander. He said this, ponder in your own hearts, on your bed, and be silent. What is he saying? When you are sinned against by God's grace, be angry, certainly. But in your anger, do not retaliate. Not with sinful words. He does not say not to respond. We'll see that in just a moment. But he does say, control your tongue. Recognize who you are in Christ. You are filled with his spirit. Control your tongue. See those lies just as what they are. Untruths from the world. In the moment of distress, you can pray and ask God to help you to forgive others. Now, is this hard to do? Of course it is hard to do, which is why we don't start here. We pray first, we compare the voice first, and then by his spirit, we don't retaliate. So we compare, we control, and lastly, verse 5, we choose. Now this is so significant, and I feel like this can easily be skipped over, but honestly, in my prayer and my study this week, I felt like this is what the Lord was showing me over and over and over again. In verse 5, David says, to offer right sacrifices. To offer right sacrifices means that you deal with sin. You deal with your own sin. Not just the sin of someone else, but you deal with the sin that is in your life. See, there's a recognition of sin on our own part. Understand here, David was just a man. He had not handled everything perfectly. We know from Scripture, David had failed many times. He failed in his pride. He failed in his parenting. He failed in his selfishness. David was a sinner, and it was appropriate for him to admit when he had failed, to confess his own sin, to repent of his own sin, to make restitution of any and all with whom he had harmed. And then, after he had done that, to go forward with the Lord. You see, this morning, when we as Christians today make right sacrifices, we do a couple of things. In James chapter 5, it says that we confess our sins to each other. In Matthew chapter 5, it says that if we know that someone has something against us, we go to that person to be reconciled. You see, we follow the exact same pattern laid out in our liturgy every single week. We confess, we repent, and then we receive God's blessing of assurance. So this morning for you, if you're in conflict with someone, you very well may need to go to them to confess your sin, to confess your pride, your selfishness. You need to seek reconciliation. You need to do all that you can in hopes that the Lord would bless that conversation. But then listen to this church. When you have done all that you can do, When you have prayed, when you have sought the Lord for his help, when you've done all that you can do, your trust is now in the Lord and not in the voices of any other man. When your sacrifice has been made, your trust is in what the gospel says is true of you. You see, Jesus is the one who made the ultimate sacrifice. So now when your faith is in him, you are now free. You really are. You're free from the lies of the enemy. You're free from the lies of people who hate you. You're free from the lies of people who are jealous of you. 
You're free from the lies of people who would love to see your destruction. You're free from all of their lies. Christ's identity is now your identity. What is the theme of our life now as his follower? Look at the end of verse 5. Put your trust in the Lord. That's who we are. Your trust is that God does not remember your sin. Your trust as far as the east is from the west, your sin is that far removed. Your trust is that God does not accuse you of anything. Your trust is that God delights in you because of Christ. Your trust is that Jesus' blood covers you and you are righteous now. Your trust is that the lives of other people about you mean nothing compared to what the Lord says is true of you. Choose this day that your identity is in who Jesus says you are. Not in anyone else, not in anyone else's voice. You're free. You have been set free. Enjoy your freedom. We've seen the foundation of our joy. It's our righteousness in Christ. We've seen the pathway of joy. We confess, we repent, we receive his assurance. Lastly, notice the results of joy. Verses 6 through 8. Hear this again. This is what God says to you this morning. His face is upon you, and in Christ he's happy. He smiles. He delights in you. He likes you. He's proud of you. Your father gives you joy. It's his gift to you. Receive his gift. And we can now fall asleep tonight Because he is our safety. He is. See, church, this is our hope. This is our life. These are our promises. Why is this possible for us? Why is this so good? It's only because of one reason. And that is because there was one night in which all of our hope depended upon our Savior not going to sleep. There was one night when Jesus stayed up all night. And face one false accusation after another. And as Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and all of his friends abandoned him and they all continued to fall asleep, he did not. He stood accused and he did not respond. He was lied to and he did not react. And he was ridiculed by wicked men and he withstood it all and he did not sin so that our sin could all be put upon him. And as he encountered one lie after another, our Savior did not give in. So that he was then qualified to be our great sacrifice. So now, he who lived for us, he who died for us, he who rose for us, he who ascended for us, you know what he's doing right now? Our king is wide awake. And he is praying for us even today. As we prepare to come to his table this morning, I'll leave you with this. Uh, There was a minister here at our church some 15, 20 years ago, Brad Rogers. Some of you all remember him. He brought RUF to UK a long time ago. But I remembered him preaching from Psalm 4. And I'll never forget his closing words, so I I will give him the closing words here. He said this, if Jesus is awake, I can go to sleep. Amen? If Jesus is awake... We're free to go to sleep. Let's pray, and I'll transition us to the Lord's Prayer.
But Father, we thank you again that your gospel is true and what you say of us is greater than what we can imagine. Father, in your grace this morning, would you cause our hearts to believe what is true? Lord, would you give rest to our souls? Father, we want the joy that is ours that you have purchased for us. Father, I pray that this church, this community, we would be a community that can rest, oh Jesus, because of who you are and what you are doing. And now, Lord, we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 